going to read from Matthew chapter 5, uh, starting at verse 13. It's on page uh, 969 in the Bibles. Jesus is speaking to his disciples and he says this. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. We think of salt as a very ordinary, everyday item. Um, It's incredibly cheap and readily available, but that's not always been the case. Throughout history, salt has been pivotal to civilization. Many cities became wealthy due to their proximity to sources of salt, uh, salt mines or brine lakes or seawater. Or perhaps they became wealthy because they could um, exploit the salt trade. There are important uh, routes of commerce and they controlled those. The salt mines of Poland led to a vast kingdom in the 16th century. Venice fought a war with Genoa over salt. Pliny the Elder, a Roman author who lived just after the time of Jesus, notes in his writing that Roman soldiers were paid in salt and that the word salary is derived from this. So why was salt so valuable? And what does Jesus mean when he says to his followers, you are the salt of the earth? Well, salt acts as a preservative. It prevents decay. Till relatively recently, there were no freezers, no chemical additives, no vacuum-packed meals. In a warm climate, food would soon spoil and go off. The wealthy would have salt cellars, rooms in the basement where they would have jars of food and those food would be packed in salt and so preserved. When Jesus says, you're the salt of the earth, he's saying that Christians have a preservative role in society. As we bring Christ's word and the kingdom's influence into our society, we help to uh, protect society. We prevent things from uh, getting out of control. We hold back the full sway of evil and sin that might otherwise be present. I wonder if you remember that Monty uh, Python sketch. I think it's from uh, The Life of Brian when uh, uh, the Jewish revolutionaries are gathered together and they're having a conversation. The conversation is, well, what have the Romans ever done for us? Well, there's the aqueduct, says one. Oh, yeah, yeah, they gave us that, that's true, but what else have they ever done for us? Well, there was sanitation, says another. Oh, yes, there was sanitation, yeah, okay, I grant you that. The aqueduct and sanitation, those are two things that the Romans have done. And the roads, says a third. Well, yes, obviously the roads, the roads goes without saying, but apart from the aqueduct and sanitation and the roads, what are the Roman... Irrigation, says another. 
and medicine and education and health. Yes, all right, all right. And wine, says another, don't forget the wine. And on and on it goes. Well, let's ask a question this morning. What has the church ever done for us? What have Christians ever done for us? I don't know if you saw on the, uh, the news this week, but a, a poll's just been done, released, saying that uh, uh, for the first time, the number of those who describe themselves as without religion or of no religion is greater than those who describe themselves as Christians in this country. And that's the question more and more people are asking. What has the church done for us? What has been the church's contribution through history? And in fact, many people are prepared to uh, spend time and energy pointing up the church's flaws and where the church has got things wrong. Has the church been salt and light? And what does it mean for the church to be salt and light? I'm going to suggest to you this morning that the church has indeed been salt and light and continues to be salt and light. Think of the field of education. It was the church which founded the first universities in Bologna, in Paris, in Oxford, in Salerno, in Vicenza, in Cambridge, in Salamanca, in Padua, in Naples, in Vercelli. By the middle of the 15th century, there were over 50 universities in Europe and all had Christian foundations. And if you're not, the motto of Oxford University is, I know we have some uh, Oxford alumni here, Dominus Illuminatio Mea. The Lord is my light. Words from Psalm 27. 100 out of the first 110 universities in America were founded for the express purpose of propagating the Christian religion. American universities emerged first from American seminaries, places where Christians would uh, train one another, educate one another, and then open that education up to others. Princeton and Yale first taught ministers of religion. Christians have long been active in the field of education, have been pioneers in the field of education. Why? Because Christians have a belief that everyone is made in the image of God. And that belief fires some to use their gifts, their heart, their soul, their mind and strength to enable others to reach their full God-given potential. If you're a Christian involved in education today and you're seeking to work out how to be salt and light, perhaps this is a word for you. Do you see those in your care as those made in the image of God? Do you see your work not just as a job, but as a vocation, helping them discover their God-given potential? What about in the field of science? Here too, Christians have been trailblazers. Copernicus was the Polish astronomer who first put forward the idea of the planets going around the sun and gave mathematical evidence for that. The church response to his discoveries is often cited as an example of religious dogma triumphing over reason, but the story is more complicated than that. 
What you might not know is that Copernicus was a canon in the Catholic Church. His new system was first presented in the Vatican Gardens. He wrote of his ideas to Pope Clement VII, who approved them and urged Copernicus to publish them at the time. Kepler. Kepler might be a name you're uh, familiar with because it's the name of the NASA Space Observatory. Named after Johann Kepler. A brilliant mathematician and astronomer. One of the first who um, uh, could see evidence for a universal concept of gravity. He He changed astronomy in a radically new modern direction. You might know his name, but did you know he was an extremely sincere and devout Lutheran who wrote not just about space and heavenly bodies, but also about Christian theology and the nature of the Trinity. Perhaps from school you remember Boyle's Law, certainly I do, uh, from chemistry lessons, uh, concerned with the study of gases. Boyle's Law, named after Robert Boyle, one of the founders of modern chemistry, uh, a founder of the Royal Society of Science. Did you know he was also a devout Protestant who took a special interest in promoting uh, the Christian faith abroad and who gave much of his wealth uh, for the translation of the scriptures into Turkish? Michael Faraday, Famous for his experiments with electricity, also a church elder. Max Planck, from who we get uh, Planck's Constant, um, best known for his work on quantum theory, a church warden for all of his adult life. Mary Keller, the first woman to gain a PhD in computer science, an American nun. I could go on and on, and it's not just to boast or to brag or say, look at us, aren't we good, aren't we doing well as a church? But it's to encourage those of you who work in science. Perhaps in these uh, forerunners, you can see uh, heroes and heroines who've gone before, who've pioneered work in your field as Christians. And they've done that not just because it's a job, And not just because it's interesting, but because it's part of their Christian vocation. Part of their vocation to be salt and light. Because they've been fired by a view of God, which means that they're duty-bound to love God with all their heart, soul, and mind, and strength. And in their scientific research, and their writings, and then their discoveries, they aim to give glory to God. That in understanding uh, the creation better, we might come to a deeper knowledge of the creator. What about social justice? In the UK, Christians have been at the forefront of the movements to abolish the slave trade and imprison reform. The Christian MP, William Wilberforce, is well known. So too is the Earl of Shaftesbury, pioneered child labour laws, Uh, passed uh, acts in Parliament to prevent women working in the mines, established the first first mental health hospitals, built parks and libraries. You might not have heard of Henry Durant, 
a student evangelist in Geneva, but you'll have heard of the organization he founded, the Red Cross. I think, too, of the great missionary movement and their achievements from William Carey onwards. CMS, the Church Mission Society with whom I served, taught 200,000 to read in East Africa in one generation. They secured the abolition of widow burning and child sacrifice in India. It was the missionaries who took Western medicine around the world, founding universities and medical schools and hospitals. I could go on and on, but I won't. But you get here a flavour of what it means to be salt and light. And perhaps it's easier to imagine that stuff on the more kind of vocational professions, in terms of science or education or social care. But what does it mean to be a Christian in the world of work? What does it mean to be a Christian in commerce or industry? What does it mean to be salt and light in those places? Is it more than just being a kind person? Is it more than just doing your job well and perhaps on the odd occasion putting in a word for Jesus? I suggest to you that it is. I'm going to show a short video now. It's a video of, um, uh, from America, uh, and it's a story of a, a man who is a, a real estate agent. We, we would call them um, an estate agent. And what's interesting about uh, his story is that before he was an estate agent, he was a pastor. He was a church minister. And yet he's discovered his vocation lay not in the church, uh, but in the field of business. And here he talks about his work and his vocation in that field.
of that at the end. Many Christians feel that they're, they're hating and waiting. I don't know if you feel about that uh, in your job situation, but somebody there who's really thought through what it means to be a Christian and what are the implications of the gospel, not just for individuals, but also for uh, communities. Um, I'm going to invite Graham to come up. Um, Graham, um, he's going to explain what he does, but he's somebody who's known both sides of that, known what it's like to be hating and waiting your job, been unhappy in work, uh, but then also about changing roles and seeing um, what he does, not just as a, a job, but as part of his Christian vocation. And he's going to say a little bit about that. Wonderful. Um, okay, so as I reminded you all at the AGM, I work in human resources, um, which uh, you might recall Andy was very quick to mock. Um, so um, what do I do? Um, essentially, I am currently a HR advisor um, at Vision Express. Um, so uh, we have our, uh, our national headquarters just down the road. And um, so I work in an office. I'm in a boring, open-plan office from the outside. Um, what do I do? Um, I am a point of contact for about 300 store managers across the country um, who will look to call uh, myself um, and the the team that I work in when they have what we would call an employee relations issue. So that might be um, a disciplinary scenario. It might be that an employee wants to raise a grievance. It might be uh, performance concerns, absence concerns. Um, and it might get sometimes a little bit more technical with regards to particular pieces of employment law, um, terms and conditions, contractually, things like that. So um, it's quite a, a specialist area of knowledge, really. Um, and I sometimes do wonder how I got into HR. Um, I was one of those people who went through university and still came out of university not really knowing what it is I wanted to do. So I did a management studies degree at the University of Nottingham. It was very broad, it was very generic, um, it had bits of finance, bits of accounting, um, very kind of operational kind of content in there, as well as a couple of modules on human resources. And I didn't know what I wanted to do, so I did like any good student did, and I scarpered to the other side of the world for seven months. Um, I went and did a discipleship school um, with a Christian organization, and that kind of meant I was in Australia for six, seven months. And actually, it was a really great time because I was able to think about what it is I exactly wanted to do when I came back. And it was whilst I was out there, whilst my time was coming to an end, and I was praying, I was asking God, what is it that I'm going to do? What is it you've called me to? And actually, really clearly, I remember hearing God speak on one particular occasion. And actually, he spoke, go and do HR. Actually, go into an area where you can influence people's dignity at work. So maybe uh, you haven't maybe thought of HR in that kind of way. But the policies, the, co- the contracts, the terms and conditions that govern our working lives... They form the majority of our, of our weeks, uh, of where do we spend most of our time, in our workplaces and so on. And actually, I wanted to get involved in a place where I could influence making that a positive experience, even at that most rubbish end of my job, where I'm maybe having to terminate somebody's employment to give that advice, to do that in a way that is fair, consistent, reasonable, and so on, I think is part of uh, a, a part of seeing dignity in a process. And I think, for me, that underlines the importance of uh, purpose and a sense of calling into our workplace as a way of avoiding that idea of hating and waiting. And I don't think I could probably do what I do now if it wasn't for that word seven years ago, whatever it was, that said, uh, go into HR, go and bring dignity to people at work. 
Uh, there's two kind of really quick things I want to say. One kind of comes out of the scripture that we looked at this morning, and one kind of links back to a phrase in the video. Um, what does it mean, uh, Lee asked, to be salt, uh, particularly, I guess, in the workplace? Is it more than just kind of going to work, putting in a good word for Jesus? And of course, that happens. The team, the, the guys that I'm close friends with, they know I'm a Christian, and we do have some really good chats. You know, you only have to open BBC News, don't you, on your lunch hour, or, and, and people have questions. What do you think about that? Um, there's sometimes a quite a different aspect being a male in a HR female dominated environment. There's a different perspective. So there's lots of questions that do kind of get asked of me about people's relationships, about what we see on the news. So there definitely is that aspect. But I think there's two things that make it more than just that. Let's put in a positive word for, for, for God, for the values of his kingdom and so on. And I think when you look at the scripture, you see, we see this idea, don't we, of a city on a hill, a lamp on a stand. What does that mean at work for me? Is it good? There we go. I think I knocked it. Um, I think being uh, on a stand, being on a hill, for me is about being knowledgeable. It's about being the best I can be. Um, And that gets lost, most certainly, on an average Thursday when you're driving to work in the rain. But for me, that is about equipping myself with the skills, with the information to do the best I can. So for me, that was the difference between uh, when I did my master's. I initially signed up just to do a postgraduate diploma. And then I kind of got a conviction halfway through that I was like, well, why wouldn't I want to be the best that I can be? That is going to equip me to influence. That is going to keep me up to date. And it's that mentality that then means that I want to keep up to date with employment law updates, business information, because I want to be the best I can be in order that I can then influence. And that goes back to those store managers who might call me. That goes back to the guys in my team. And then to tie that into what he was then just saying, he talked about adding value. And obviously, that's quite a commercial phrase. Um, But I think one of the roles that I I see for myself as a Christian in my workplace, in my little context, is um, I'm maybe one of the more experienced guys on my team. I've got about seven, six years in HR now. And there might be people I work with who have got maybe two or three and maybe have never dealt with a redundancy situation or never dealt with a a particular kind of dismissal case or complex uh, scenario. And I think the way that I add value is that, yes, I'm I'm competitive for... uh, recognition and for developing my own career but it's how do you do that in a way that doesn't undercut people how do you do that in a way that brings people on a journey with you so that they get the opportunity to be developed by the knowledge or the skills that I think I have and so one of the things that I often try to do is if I get asked to lead a particular project or on a piece of work I'm always trying to find ways in which I can bring someone on that journey with me so um, I can think of a scenario I've got right now where might be planning a particular piece of work and it's really easy to kind of go Graham will you run with this and I'll go brilliant I'm going to get all the glory but actually let's tag someone onto that who can then develop and then adding value it might not be like this guy was talking about for a customer or for community but it again is for the wider team it's for that person's development it's for that person's dignity in their job as well so there's Keeping up to, up to date with information, keeping up to date and being the best we can be. I think that is salt and light in our workplace and then using that positively in how we influence uh, the people around us. Thank you.
sure that's um, sparked lots of questions and thoughts and ideas, maybe you're reflecting on your um, workplace. Um, one of the things that's really good about St. Giles is the breadth of uh, community that we have here, and um, often lots of work in this stuff out goes on in home groups. Um, I lead the men's breakfast once a month, and what we talk about there more than anything else is about being a Christian at work and what it looks like to be sought and like and how we uh, manage those things. So if you actually, you're thinking, yeah, there's something in this for me, I need to explore this further, I encourage you to think about uh, home groups as perhaps a forum in where you might do that or with some uh, Christian brothers or sisters who can help you process stuff through. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Lord Jesus, you said uh, that we are the salt of the earth and we are a city on a hill. And Lord, for good or ill, we know that we're on display. And so we pray that you would teach us and train us and disciple us and show us what it means uh, to live as faithful followers of you um, in science and in education and in the workplace and at home or uh, even uh, as we wrestle with unemployment, whatever situation you've placed us in. Uh, we pray that you uh, show us more and more how we can live lives uh, faithful to you and that bring glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen.